0: Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 32A, an interview on FDR and the New Deal with Eric Rauchway. I'm excited to welcome Eric Rauchway to the show today. Eric is a distinguished professor of history at UC Davis, where his research focuses on the New Deal and the Second World War. He has authored numerous books on these topics, including most recently, Why the New Deal Matters, and also Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash over the New Deal. And Moneymakers, how Roosevelt and Keynes ended the depression, defeated fascism, and secured a prosperous peace. He is the perfect person to talk to about the New Deal and the end of the Great Depression. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I- I'd love to start with what inspired your interest in the New Deal?
1: Well, it's um you know something that I came to in my scholarly career. You know, I've been professing uh, as a professor since the 1990s, and uh, I started out in the early 20th century and writing about the other Roosevelt, and it kind of led naturally into a discussion of this one. I had written a book about uh, the global economy in the late 19th and early 20th century, and an editor at Oxford University Press basically said, wouldn't you like to go further and write about the Great Depression?
0: So I said, sure, why not? And that's, uh, that's
1: where I've been ever since.
0: <laughs> it's a good place to be. Who doesn't want to be in the Great Depression?
1: Well, it's one of those things where if you're an expert on the 1930s, uh, you don't want to be asked any questions about current events because it means we're in a bad way.
0: <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. That's a good point. When the stock market first started to collapse in 1929, Roosevelt was about 10 months into his first term as governor of New York. Uh, In my past episodes, I looked at how Hoover responded to this depression. How did Governor Roosevelt react at the first signs of panic in the stock market in 1929? Well, like basically everyone,
1: the uh, governor didn't think that there was any reason to regard this as anything more than a stock market dip. These things happen, You know, the stock market goes up, the stock market goes down. This is what they say. If you ask an expert uh, what the market will do, they say the market will fluctuate, right? And so for some time after the crash, Roosevelt took that view. Probably wasn't until early 1930 uh, that he began to think more seriously about what was going on.
0: And what prompted that? What made him start to say, wait a second, this isn't just a fluctuation, as you say. This is something different.
1: Well, it was the fact that it sort of seemed to spread into a macroeconomic problem, you know, pretty relentlessly with the cessation of orders for goods and with people getting laid off because there weren't orders for goods, right? That began within a matter of months to become apparent. Uh, during His time as governor, Roosevelt's uh, commissioner of labor in New York state was Francis Perkins, who Mm. would later be his secretary of labor. And early in 1930, Perkins um, got into a disagreement with President Hoover because in her view, uh, which turned out to be correct, uh, President Hoover was understating the unemployment data, that her data showed it getting worse. And um, Hoover's made it look uh, like it was getting better. Uh, and uh, she made this a public dispute, uh, which uh, drew Roosevelt into it. Uh, Roosevelt said he was grateful that she hadn't asked him first, because then he would have had to say, don't do that. Uh, but once she had done it, you know, it provided him with um, useful political uh, fuel. Because, of course, here was the president uh, misstating uh, this vital issue. And Roosevelt's commissioner of labor was drawing attention to the um you know, to the real concern. And it was, it was basically in the spring of 1930 that he began to take that up as a theme that we need to face what's really going on, that we need to study it the way that a physician might study a disease so that we can come up with a cure. So he's not at that point proposing the cure necessarily, <laughs> but he yeah. is saying, you know, look, this is something that we need to take seriously in a way that, you know, the president isn't and, and, and maybe a lot of other people are.
0: And how does the Great Depression play out during the rest of his two terms as governor? You know, when does he start to have a prescription for the cure and what does he try? Well,
1: as would be the case when he was president, right? Um, Some of the things that he came in to office uh, being in favor of, were things that he continued to advocate through the depression. So he supported, you know, old age pensions, he supported uh, public hydroelectric power, he supported unemployment insurance, you know, already. And all of these things he continued to to press for, you know, with the spin that now they would be, uh, you know, relief in the depression, the kind of thing that would alleviate downturns generally, right. And then Um, He also proposed a farm relief program. Uh, He brought in another person who would later be in his presidential administration, Henry Morgenthau Jr., to work on a farm relief program for New York State's farmers. Uh, Most significantly, though, in, in 1931, he really went to the legislature not just with a request for a relief program of public employment. This would become the Temporary Emergency Relief Administration, which would be run by again another figure who would show up later, Harry Hopkins, and then um, you know, and it would it would uh, employ people who were unemployed. It would employ women to act as public social workers to find people who were unemployed, and also to make goods to supply aid in kind to people who couldn't work. Uh, but of course, it wouldn't pay a dole. This would be a hallmark of, of Roosevelt's philosophy of relief is no direct payments of cash. Uh, you know, hire people to do work or give them aid in kind, but but not just write checks. So when he went to propose that, and which was then adopted uh, in, in, in the summer of 1931, he also then made a broader case, you know, about the nature of the state. You know, it was a very philosophical speech. He says, you know, that the state exists so that we collectively uh, can do for ourselves the kinds of things that we cannot do as individuals. So where individuals or civic institutions fail, the state needs to step in. So this is where he's really sort of articulating this philosophy, which of course becomes very important during his presidency.
0: And what does he learn from these efforts? You mentioned he influences does, does he have success implementing other things too? Like is there a state-level unemployment insurance? Is there a state-level public works program during this time? And what does he learn that he's able to implement, take, take with him into the presidency?
1: Well, he does he does get the state level uh uh relief program, the public works program, the T E R A, which I which I mentioned, the unemployment insurance not, although he begins the process of setting it in motion. He also probably learns that um, you know, as as might be natural given his background, uh, that he may be a little bit too trusting of uh Wall Street bankers. Uh, you know there's there's an important episode in, in 31 where a large bank uh it's called Bank of the United States. It's not a public thing. It's just it's just called that. As a right. <laughs> um, with a, really a huge a huge, you know, capitalization fails and Roosevelt tries to marshal a private consortium to bail it out and they won't do it. And um you know so he Possibly learned a negative lesson there that, you know, you shouldn't, uh, you know, short of necessary rely on J.P. Morgan et al. to step up and do the right thing. Um, he does learn, of course, I think, uh, a lesson that perhaps he already knew, but was reinforced, which is that when you show your voters that the government works for them we will vote for you. Uh, that is, that is, a, you know, sort of, which you can sum up as sort of, you know, good policy is good politics, something like that. You know that uh, that these 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 things work.
0: Awesome. And, and so, when he runs for president, having had this experience, and he can point to this as he's mm-hmm. running, he's running with the campaign song "Happy Days Are Here Again." He wins in a landslide. Right. And you've written an entire book about the hundred sixteen odd days that come next between election day. And inauguration day, and the conflict between Roosevelt and uh, I suppose lame duck outgoing Hoover over how to stem a major banking crisis that's happening at the time. Can you can you fill me in? Boil your entire book down to a short answer on what's happening with the banks right now. What does Hoover ask? Why does Roosevelt say no? What's going on?
1: Okay. Well, the first thing uh, we have to know about is, is th- a brief note on the character of the campaign, if you don't mind, right? Yeah, there is yeah. There is a kind of popular conception that keeps getting repeated that Roosevelt didn't propose anything concrete during the campaign. Mm, mm. This is simply not true. Uh, It is easily debunked by looking at Roosevelt's speeches. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, the reason why it's true might be a little further afield than the question you're asking. We can go into that if you want. But um, in any case, it is important that during the campaign, Roosevelt says, you know, I will have a big public works program. I will have unemployment insurance. I will have contributory old age pensions. I will have a lower tariff. I will have farm relief that will be, uh, you know, accomplished probably by some mechanism of subsidy, so forth and so on. I will have, uh, you know, sort of shared regulation, public and private of business. Basically, most of the things that turn up in the New Deal are things that he says he will do in the campaign. Um, There is a speech where he tries to kind of tack the other way, and he says... I'm in favor of economizing in government, and we will move towards balancing the budget. But he hedges this even in that speech, where he says, "I only mean, you know, the regular budget, i.e., not the emergency programs that I'm proposing. Those are going to exceed, you know, the, the the regular budget." And in fact, during his presidency, he will stick with that line. I never said I would balance. The whole budget, just a sort of <laughs> standard operating budget, yeah. which in fact does go down a little bit, you know, during, yeah. uh, under his early budgets, he just then blows it out by essentially spending all the money on the new deal. And his argument is, of course, you know, why would you say we need to balance the budget when people are starving, right? That, that, that's, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, so that's how he runs. And in that campaign, Hoover runs by saying all of that stuff that Roosevelt's promising is not only, um, ill-advised. But it is, in fact, going to destroy the republic, not just the economy, but the republic, right? It will crack the timbers of the Constitution, Hoover says. Hoover says it, is, it smells of the fumes that has lately boiled over in Moscow, you know, mm. uh, which is you know not deep code there, right? right. So, we, we, you know, Hoover is not subtle. Roosevelt's very clear. It is, in fact, a very issue-oriented campaign where anybody who had any idea what was going on would know the difference between the two candidates so that, yeah. that's important to mention that's also important to what roosevelt's thinking having won that election yeah right because we have to look at the world at this point which roosevelt is doing this is the time when adolf hitler is about to come to power in germany right has come very close right the nazi party is is, is, you, know, is you know coming to be the largest party in the reichstag right mussolini is already in power uh in, in italy uh Roosevelt conceives of Hitler as being a real problem precisely because he's going to confirm people like Mussolini in their worst habits and make them, Mm -hmm. you know, even worse, right? And so Roosevelt Mm -hmm. sees democracy sort of on its heels around the world. He sees in the United States the potential for the same thing. That summer, uh, 32, there had been, uh, a march of some tens of thousands of veterans of the Great War on Washington, D.C., right? This is the bonus army of the bonus expeditionary force. Uh, you know, Hoover calls out the army under Douglas MacArthur to run them off with tanks and tear gas. Roosevelt sees this and sees in it two possible paths to fascism, which is more, two more than you want, right? I mean, so he says, you know, yeah. on the one hand, you know, those discontented people have lost faith in their government. They could become a bright-wing mob, uh, as as in fact, you know, discontented veterans have in Europe, right, at this time. And- Two, you know, businessmen and bankers who are afraid of that mob could tip us over into dictatorship by backing people like Doug MacArthur, who's using the army to crush, you know, the the masses, right? Either thing is bad. So Roosevelt sees his campaign as being kind of a, a way to restore people's faith in democracy. And once he's won, a friend says to him, you know, um if you succeed you will be the greatest president of the united states or something like that and and roosevelt says if i fail i will be the last yeah right so this is what roosevelt is thinking right that this is about salvaging democracy as flawed as it is in the united states right and so that's what he thinks is at stake all these people voted for me to do these things so i have to come into office and do them okay hoover thinks Roosevelt needs to be told not to do these things because they're terrible, terrible, terrible ideas. They will, again, crack the timbers of the Constitution. They will bankrupt the, you know, the Treasury. They will bankrupt. And so you have these two um, polar opposites, you know, about what needs to be done for the, for the, for the country's good. That's how you understand what happens next, right? Is that Hoover is trying over the course of those months to hem Roosevelt in to prevent him from enacting a new deal. First, he tries basically persuading him that, you know, this is foolish. You really need to see the world as I do. You need to understand, you know, the sort of the constraints on what can be done. And therefore that none of the things you have run on can actually be done. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: He then, um, once the banking crisis really gets underway, which is sort of December, January.
0: Yeah.
1: Becomes convinced and he turns out to be right about this, that Roosevelt will use the banking crisis as a way to take the dollar off the gold standard and institute a possible uh, a program of inflation. Yeah. And so he tries to stop Roosevelt from being able to do that by trying to get Roosevelt to make a joint declaration with him saying, I won't do this. And so Roosevelt spends those months kind of dodging uh, Hoover's efforts to tie him down to a policy that he doesn't want to pursue. Because again, he's convinced that this is what he was elected to do. So that's what you see happening during those months is this kind of back and forth between these two people who are deeply convinced about the opposite correct course for the country, uh, trying to act on those convictions.
0: And and how dire is the banking crisis at this point? Like how dire a straight is the country in? Well, These two are, I guess, one's trying to chase the other and the other's trying to play keep away.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there there had been a series of banking crises over the course of the Depression, starting in in 29. The United States did not have, uh, you know, an activist Federal Reserve. It did not have the FDIC. So these programs that we think of now as existing to prevent financial collapse weren't there. So, um, you know, banks went under, they went under. And this was thought of as, well, this is the punishment for being a bad bank. And, you know, mm. if a bunch of depositors lost their money, that's their tough luck. You know, everyone has learned a harsh lesson here. Um, so there were waves of these crises. Um, and then they would kind of subside, but they, they kind of tend to be um, uh, 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 self perpetuating because once people lose faith in one bank, people yeah. who are not depositors at that bank might say well maybe my bank which hitherto has shown no signs of being wobbly maybe i should take my money out just in case cuz i don't want to lose my money right yeah so you have this uh, you know these sort of waves cresting and then they begin to take off again late in the summer of 1932 and they become really bad by december uh, early january uh, so 32 33 and the real threat here is not just that private banks will go under or will close their doors and refuse to honor depositors' demands, but now they will put pressure by their failure on the Federal Reserve System, which, you know, is the system of banks for banks, right? right. And that, uh, you know, the they, um, people who lose their faith utterly in the United States financial situation will not only take their money out of the bank... They will then take that money to the local Federal Reserve branch, of which there are a dozen around the country, and they will say, I want to take these paper dollars and redeem them for gold, which Ah. they're allowed to do because the United States is at that time on a gold standard. And that's the measure of a gold standard is can you redeem paper money for gold, for a fixed amount of gold? Yeah. And um, there are a number of Federal Reserve banks that are, as a result of this, either at or below their statutory, which is to say their legal uh, minimums. Of gold, so they are on the verge of being insolvent. So, if not just private banks, but the Federal Reserve itself begins to be insolvent, you really have a serious crisis at that point. I mean, it was already a serious crisis, but you know, this is this is now extra.
0: Yeah. So, so these are the stakes as Roosevelt is sworn in on March fourth, and he immediately addresses them. He immediately takes action on the banking crisis, and then leaps into his famous you know, first hundred days of New Deal accomplishments. Um, When I was writing my script for this episode, I found it hard to sum up because he just does so much that it's really easy for it to become just a list of like bills and statistics. So I'm curious, what, what are your big takeaways from Roosevelt's first 100 days? And then if you want, you can start with the banking crisis.
1: Sure. Well, I think, you know, the banking crisis forced some priorities on him that wouldn't have been his priorities otherwise. Right? Ah, I mean, his yeah. his his priorities otherwise were going to be, you know, addressing unemployment, uh, farm relief, which is another way of addressing unemployment, and um, kind of moving in that direction. So bringing aid to directly to working people. So the imminent financial crisis, you know, forced him to kind of tack in another direction. And during those months before the presidency, he consulted fairly widely about what he would be allowed to do, Mm. particularly with one of the members of the Federal Reserve Board um, who had helped to draft the legislation, which gave the president wide latitude to regulate the currency. And so he understood from this, he could use this uh, legislation to stop transaction in gold. So that would, number one, stop the sort of hemorrhaging of money from the banks, like we just discussed. It would also allow him then to stop such transactions forever, to move on to a policy of regulating the um, gold value of the dollar. So moving towards what was then called, I guess it's still called an elastic currency, that you would have more money in the economy when there was more activity and less when there was less activity, and you would use the money to regulate the economy. So he, he does that right away. Uh, the first thing he does is to close the banks. He does this by saying he's halting transactions in gold, and he never again allows that thing we were talking about. He never again allows people to go to the bank and say, give me, give me gold. Right. That's that's off the table for good from that point onwards because he's trying to induce the um, expectation of inflation. Mm-hmm. You know, but since 1929, prices have been falling. Right, mm, prices right, are falling. Right. Prices are falling. People expect prices to fall. That means people who have money have no incentive to buy things. They have the incentive to wait because they'll be yeah. cheaper later. Right. So yeah. unless yeah. it's a necessity, right? I mean, you know, they, they'll buy it later. So that depresses, hence the name, economic activity, right? Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is tell the people this is ending now. And from now on, you can expect prices to go up. So if you have money, you should buy things now. And this is a successful program. This is, and you know, just just for some perspective, this is broadly understood to be successful. There's there's very few people who will argue with this point that this is this is expansionary monetary policy induces the expectation of inflation and immediately reverses that downward trend of basically all of the things, all of the graphs that you look at to determine the health of the economy, turn right around there in March nineteen thirty-three because of inducing this expectation of inflation.
0: And actually, this reminds me of a question I want to interject here. We talked about how Hoover was trying to chase FDR to do some things. I've, I've heard some claim that this was what Hoover wanted FDR to do. Like Hoover had been saying, I want a bank holiday. Can't we do that together? You know, how much of this plan that FDR implements is his own? How much of it is Hoover's?
1: Well, to be clear, Hoover did not want to go off the gold standard.
0: Right. That's specifically right. That's what he was yes.
1: trying to stop Roosevelt from doing. Yes. You, you 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 correctly say that some people will say, but Hoover wanted a bank holiday. Right. But that's wrong because Hoover was the president of the United States. So if Hoover wanted a bank holiday, what Hoover could have done is said, we are having a bank holiday. This yeah. is what the Federal Reserve kept telling him to do right ah, up to the yeah. wee hours of- March 4th when they slid paper under his door saying please for the love of god sign this mr president so we can have a bank holiday you know even they want even a few hours ahead uh, of when we would otherwise get it with roosevelt we want it and he refused to do it so these are not the actions of a man who wants a bank holiday these are the actions of a man who <laughs> is refusing to declare yeah. a bank holiday you know so the, the that's why you have to see the argument about well we should do it together is a way of you know, trying to confine Roosevelt and basically shackle him to his agenda, right? I mean, and Roosevelt's argument was, I have no together power. I am a private (laughs) citizen.
0: Yes. You want to do it?
1: You're the president. (laughs) Yeah. I, Roosevelt, through one of his aides, Rex Tugwell, Roosevelt let the administration know what he was going to do on March 4th, you know, including going off the gold standard. So it was, oh, and declaring a bank So It was open to Hoover. To preempt that in any way he liked, and he didn't do it. So again, people who say Hoover wanted a bank holiday seem to me to be misinformed.
0: Great. I appreciate that that clarity there. Um, Okay. So Roosevelt comes in, addresses the banking crisis with, with all the methods that you just mentioned. And then he's off and running with the legislation that he wanted to do, all these new deal packages. So high level, what are the big takeaways from Roosevelt's first 100 days?
1: Well, the big takeaways are that Roosevelt tried to push on a wide variety of fronts, so to bring relief to a variety of sectors of the economy, as well as to start to reform some basic, uh, you know, financial uh, difficulties that he saw. And it's not just Roosevelt; it's important to say, right? It is broadly speaking the. Progressive, and I'm using that term instead of democratic because there's some cross-party agreement here between Republicans and Democrats who identify as progressives at this point on what to do, right? So, and in fact, in some cases, they're actually pushing for more than what Roosevelt wants, or different than what Roosevelt wants. So it's it's wrong to think about it as just Roosevelt, but with that idea in mind, um, okay. So first of all, farm relief. This was something that Roosevelt's uh, advisors. Tried to get done in the lame duck Congress in 32 33, but Hoover said he would veto any such thing. So, but then they had this sort of basic outline of the program that they wanted to pass, and it was yeah. ready to go right away yeah. when the new Congress and, when, and Roosevelt came in. So that was one of the first things they did was to adopt the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which would, um, you know, use a special tax on processing of farm commodities to subsidize, uh, the, 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 the farmers so that they would produce less of them and thus raise the prices. So again, you're looking at trying to produce inflation with that, as we talked about before, just as you are the monetary policy. Same goes with, um, uh, public works more generally, right? Roosevelt, uh, very swiftly creates what's, uh, the civilian conservation corps. Uh, which is one of the first of the public works programs and the most enduringly popular. I mean, even to this day, people have a real fondness for the CCC, but it's worth thinking about what it did specifically. This employed young men who were unemployed took them away from urban environments and put them out in national parks or state parks or whatever and had them dig fire breaks or repair uh, irrigation or whatever. So it's not just providing work to people who had work, but it's a removing a potentially dangerous social element from the environment where they can cause trouble. Not only does Roosevelt tailor this program to those people, to young men, he also sets aside a portion of the CCC for veterans of the great war, specifically trying to defuse the bonus army movement, which again, he thought was a threat. And in fact, the bonus army leader said, this is great for us. You know, we no longer need to to demonstrate anymore. So it it, it had the right, uh, you know, the intended effect. So you get that, you get the. Um, uh, the, uh, the banking and monetary legislation that we talked about. Uh, you will also see um, one of Roosevelt's babies, which I talked about before, that uh, uh, that he was always in favor of public hydroelectric power, that he campaigned on this. The first sort of experiment in implementing that is the Tennessee Valley Authority, which sort of takes uh, uh, control of the entire Tennessee River watershed, you know, covering a multitude of states in the Upper South, and puts it under the jurisdiction of this regional authority, which is headquartered in Knoxville, Tennessee, the sea and they're not only going to dam the river and generate power but also do all kinds of conservation and producing fertilizer and and uh, you know generally think ecologically about what's going on in that region so it's a kind of testbed for uh, regional development and conservation as well as producing hydroelectric power that goes in in the first hundred days um, and then just at the end there is sort of the big industrial Uh, recovery program, the National Industrial Recovery Act, which first of all appropriates an enormous sum of money, billions of dollars, three billions of dollars for public works uh, and creates the Public Works Administration, which will be run out of the Department of the Interior, but then also uh, establishes these um, industry associations, basically public-private cartels that will work in a specific industry to try to regulate Wages, prices, and conditions of labor. And the argument here, again, is we are going to push upwards on wages. We are going to put a floor under prices because, again, we want to create that expectation of inflation. If workers have more money, they will drive prices up. And that's what we are actually looking to do. So he's trying to push across the board uh, to create inflation. And those are, those are the big ones.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Others, obviously, as you indicate, absolutely. Yeah. The, other, the only thing I would point out that, that that usually gets left out of these these narratives is that the NIRA is one of the last things to go through yeah. in that sort of first flood of legislation, and already Roosevelt is losing support. Mm. Right. It's kind of a you know it's it goes through by a decent margin, but not by as big a margin as the banking bill, which was the first thing back at the at the top of the list, and yeah. so already people are saying you know just to, just Three months in, people are saying, well, okay, well, the crisis seems to have eased. Do we really need any more New Deal? Maybe you could send Mm -hmm. this because this is a special session of Congress, an emergency session, right? Maybe you could send the emergency session home and Uh, we could stop with all of this radical stuff because a lot of people think he's already going too far. So I know there's a narrative of, you know, oh Roosevelt can get whatever he wants from this Congress, but (gasps) that's already kind of not true even by the end of the 100 days, right? So that's something to keep in mind.
0: So the the New Deal was so unlike anything the United States had done before, and you mentioned Roosevelt had some of the ideas. Like, but you know, when he was campaigning for governor, even. But where did the, these ideas come from? You know, is is he borrowing inspiration from abroad, from others at home? Was any of this stuff his like genuine, intuitive idea? Where did this stuff come from?
1: Well, a lot of it came from progressive politics. So from the early 20th century, when Theodore Roosevelt was really the sort of, or one of the dominant figures in US politics, and that was born of Theodore Roosevelt's attempt to kind of reinvent the Republican Party as having a solid constituency in the American West. It already had a solid constituency in the Northeast. He wanted to weld that to votes in the West to create a solid national majority. And the way he had to do that, he thought, was to placate people who would otherwise vote for radicals like William Jennings Bryan, who was the, the big Democratic figure of the time, right? So he wanted to persuade farmers that they could get policies from Republicans that they would want. He wanted to persuade people that he was taking a kind of public interest approach to the country, thinking in terms of labor legislation, and then also natural conservation. So consumer laws, labor laws, you know, uh, laws that farmers wanted and um, natural conservation were Theodore Roosevelt's agenda. And a lot of this pops up again in Franklin Roosevelt's agenda as well. There is a sense that, you know, Theodore is Franklin's uncle by marriage and his right. fifth cousin anyway, because Franklin married his cousin. Right. So, um, Eleanor Roosevelt's married name is Eleanor Roosevelt Roosevelt. Right. But,
0: uh, <laughs> yeah. this is how you got to hyphenate uh, that one. This know, is keep- how uh,
1: rich families keep the money in the family. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, so he, so, so Franklin is already attached, you know, emotionally to kind of the Theodore kinds of politics. Plus Franklin served in the Woodrow Wilson administration. And Wilson is sort of the progressive Democrat of the same era, right? So he's got kinds of progressive inheritances sort of on both sides of his familial and political lineage, right? So there's that. And a lot of the things that the New Deal does, like the kind of regional planning program with the TVA, you know, that's an expanded idea of this natural conservationist, you know, you sort of using this sense of public and of of responsibility, but also the interdependence of various kinds of interests to create a new kind of authority, right? Because it's not just state or local, it's not federal, it's actually sort of being conscious of the natural region, the Tennessee River Valley, right? So that's obviously a progressive inheritance. A lot of the labor laws um, like, you know, the, again, unemployment insurance, uh, minimum wage, maximum hours laws, which come in in various ways through the new deal. These are all progressive, uh, legacy things that, uh, you know, people have been pressing for at various levels being knocked back by the Supreme court, uh, in the early years of the 20th century. So these are things that, you know, there's just a lot of pressure behind them. And now the dam has broken and they, they can come through. Um, So, and then the, the farm stuff, that's really, again, that's the William Jennings Bryan agenda, you know, Mm -hmm. is let's placate the farmer sort of coming to the fore again. And so of course, is going off the gold standard, which was of course, what William Jennings Bryan stood for back in 1896. So all of these things, you know, come from either the progressive or the populist side of the ledger. Um, They're very familiar to a lot of Americans and conservatives like Hoover have been resisting them, you know, for. For, for a long time, right? So, this has been the struggle uh, in American politics going back at least to the 1890s, really, possibly to the 1870s, depending on how you draw these lines of inheritance. Sure, and it's sure. just that now, you know, Franklin Roosevelt has a, a, a big majority and can push them through, right? So, yeah. that's, you know, you asked if there's influences from abroad. Sure. I mean, a lot of progressives, particularly, when they said, what should we do in terms of old age pensions, they looked at what other countries were doing. You know, Bismarck's Germany, uh, Ah. the uh, liberal uh, government in England, when Winston Churchill was Home Secretary, had put through early sort of forms of social welfare legislation in the late 19th and the early 20th century. And it's worth pointing out that, you know, Bismarck and Churchill are not what you would call lefties. Right. These <laughs> no, are these quite. are actually these are actually sort of conservative laws again yeah. to forestall more radical things. You know? Uh yeah, yeah, so yeah. So that's that there's a lot of that in the New Deal. Is, you know, we want to kind of preserve a lot of things. And if that sounds conservative, then you know it probably is.
0: So major parts of the New Deal are passed right away. Some you know get in later. Big question is how does all this stuff do? You know what worked, what didn't work.
1: Well, uh, first thing uh, you know, you have to ask yourself is what does you mean? What do you mean by work? Um, there is a, a tendency among macroeconomists and among economic historians to think of work means does the GDP line go in the right direction, or do the uh, other? You know, which way do the lines go? Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, on that account, we can say, sure, sure thing it worked because as I say, recovery begins in March, 1933. It continues not only through Roosevelt's first term in office, but rapidly. We're looking at eight, nine, 10% rates of annual economic growth. You know, We're looking at very rapid economic growth. There is a recession in 37, 38, which we can talk about, but is widely attributed to uh, Roosevelt's sort of premature optimism and kind of cutting back on some New Deal kind of programs, and then you know, recovery resumes in 38. So on that basic measure, you know, it's a success. Or at least you can say, if you believe that it is in principle impossible for public spending to promote recovery, if it has to be a drag on recovery, if all of this stuff is interfering with the economy in a way that exerts downward pressure, it still doesn't exert sufficient downward pressure to prevent a <laughs> rapid recovery, right? Yeah, so yeah. that's the sort of minimum honest thing you can say about recovery under the New Deal. But as I, as I kind of indicated to you earlier in the conversation, I think that's an impoverished view about how to think about how well does the New Deal do because that's not what Roosevelt's trying to do. And in fact, he explicitly says that's not what he's trying to do, right? He doesn't want to just go back to where we were. He wants to move forward to put safeguards in place, not only for the economy, but again, to hammer this point for democracy, right? Roosevelt is trying to preserve what there is of American democracy and to strengthen it against the encroaching fascist threat. You know, when he runs for reelection in 36, he says, this is, this is what I'm running on is the idea of faith in democracy in a world of dictatorships. Yeah. Right. So yeah. he's really thinking of the New Deal in those terms.
0: And I'd love to dive deeper into to some of what you said there. You know, I feel like the line I increasingly hear these days from certain folks is that World War II, not the New Deal, got the United States out of the Great Depression. And some folks will try to say that the New Deal made the Depression longer, as you were kind of speaking to. What does the evidence show on this front, this idea that, no, it was the World War II that got us out, New Deal didn't work. Can you elaborate more on on the numbers and the evidence there?
1: Yeah, let's stipulate for a second that this argument is correct. Let's say it's the New Deal. uh, Sorry, it's the. (laughs) Let's say it's the World War or mobilization for the war and not the New Deal that pulls the country out of depression. Let's just think about what that means. When you say that, what you're saying is well, when the federal government employs a lot of Americans to build tanks and airplanes, it creates economic recovery. In a way that employing a lot of Americans to build roads and schools did not. Right. There's nothing magic about tanks and airplanes that promote economic recovery over roads and schools. What's magic is the number of Americans who are employed in the war, right? So what yeah, you're actually yeah. saying, if you accept that argument, what you're actually saying is the new deal should have been bigger sooner.
0: Yeah. They yeah. should
1: have employed as many people to build schools and roads and paint murals and airports and all that stuff back in, night starting in 33, or indeed during the Hoover administration. And they could have had that recovery sooner. I mean, one nice way to put uh, uh, a point on this is, you know, the, the head of the WPA is Harry Hopkins. Uh, and then Hopkins will become the first director of the Lend-Lease program, you know, to build uh, munitions for aid to the Allies in 1941. Hopkins' budget at Lend-Lease is about 10 times what his budget wow. was at WPA. Yeah. So that's that's the story right there. Give Harry Hopkins in 35, the money you're giving Harry Hopkins in 41, and you have, so it's not debunking the theory behind the new deal. Even if you say it's the war, not the new deal, right? You're just saying yeah. we needed more new deal sooner. That's what you're yeah. saying. So that, yeah. that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, again, uh, recovery was underway right, during the 30s. Again, you can see it in all the graphs. Not only can you see it in all the graphs, you can see it in the way Americans talked about their country at that time. Right? They knew it was recovering. You, know, I mean, again, to, to pick an obvious data point, but one that yeah. seems to be always neglected. Okay. In 1936, Franklin Roosevelt is reelected by the largest margin <laughs> since James Monroe <laughs> ran essentially unopposed. Yes. Right? So- that's not a man who had an unsuccessful first term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a man where the voters are saying, I want that guy again, right? I, and not only that, when you, when you dig into it, as, as, as political scientists often do, they say, oh, in fact, you can see where economic recovery was strongest, the swing towards Roosevelt was greatest, right? Mm. So people know, you know, that the New Deal has worked for them and they expect it to go on working. And that's why he gets a, you know, another shot at it, right? So that, that's the thing that I would point. Now, just because recovery is underway doesn't mean it's a complete recovery at any of those points. So you could, with you know, some degree of honesty, say recovery wasn't complete before 40, 41, whatever year you want to pick. I mean, yeah. you know, you want to see. I, you want to. What do you want to see? Do you want to see <laughs> unemployment below uh, an arbitrary threshold? Do right. you want to see GDP return to pre-depression trend? You can see those things by the end of the 30s, right? So, well, that is when the war begins. So it's you know, it's it's not a good scientific experiment uh, as to which is the 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 the, the more decisive thing, but uh, you know, again. Even if you think it's the war and not the New Deal, all you're saying is we needed a bigger New Deal sooner.
0: Cool. I, I appreciate you explaining that for me. Yeah. Um, Nick, I want to go back to the passage of the New Deal. And, and you would already mentioned this, that it this was not a Congress that was going to give him everything he wanted. Even by the end of the first 100 days, it was getting tougher. I, I've seen some folks claim that Roosevelt was only able to pass the New Deal by making a devil's bargain with the South, similar to Wilson had done. You give me this progressive legislation, and I won't touch civil rights. I'm curious if there's any truth to that.
1: Oh, well, there's some truth to it, sure. I mean, I, I think that the comparison with Wilson, I mean, you know, Wilson wanted segregation.
0: That's the difference, right? I mean, Wilson was
1: yeah. pro-segregation. He, it was his administration that brought segregation to Washington. It's Roosevelt's administration that begins to undo it. Right. You know, the, famously in the in the Department of Interior, you know, Harold Nickies, who had been head of the Chicago NAACP, you know, basically comes into office and says, you know, the black workers are going to eat with the white workers. and You're just going to have to live with that. You know, and that that begins this process of, of undoing. Things. So, I mean, the the bigger and and more useful picture is to say this is still the Democratic Party, you know, in 1933. It's the same Democratic Party it's been since the Civil War, which means that it depends on the segregationist South for its national majority, right? Whether in Congress or the Electoral College, right? So, um, no Democrat is going to be able to put together a national majority in this era without votes from Southern states. So Roosevelt needs those votes. Roosevelt needs those votes. Roosevelt also needs, of course, because the uh, segregationist South is, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, once you get elected, you're in office forever. That means that given Congress's seniority system, you know, segregationist Democrats are going to be the senior members of all the important committees, particularly in the Senate. And you need the support of all these people if you want to just even get stuff out of Right. So um, the Democratic Party in the South is progressive on some economic issues, right? Again, again, this goes back to the sort of the William Jennings Bryan era. They represent poor farmers, they represent people who hate railroad corporations. You know, they want to regulate industry um, and they want lower tariffs. They want a lot of the things that feed into the New Deal. agenda. They're certainly in favor of things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, which brings a huge number of jobs to the south and of course electricity and modernization. You know, so that they're willing to back a lot of that New Deal program. Even though at the very beginning, those Southern Democrats are very concerned about things that are going to raise wages across the board because the South is a low-wage economy and it's a low-wage economy that depends specifically on lower wages being paid to Black people who stay immired in that low-wage economy. So they're opposed to raising wages, they're opposed to social mobility, they're opposed to physical mobility because it means that those Black workers are going to leave. And the New Deal threatens all of that. And in fact, ultimately, the New Deal kills that system right? Because while there are local programs like the TVA, which are because they're run by Southerners in the South, they do employ black workers, but they have segregated works, right? They have segregated Mm -hmm. works. They have Jim Crow working conditions, Mm -hmm. but the WPA is not allowed to do this because it's a national program. And the WPA is disallowed first by regulation, then by law from discriminating on the basis of race. So the WPA creates an incentive to move right? To move out of the South because you yep. know you can get a job. You know, you know you can get a job at a security wage, as it's called. Mm. And civil rights organizations point to the WPA and say, this is the greatest engine of social mobility for Black Americans You know, since Reconstruction. And ultimately, of course, that's what leads to Black voters becoming Democrats. Mm. Mm-hmm. The majority of Black voters become Democrats in 36, not in 32. Okay. In 36, after they've seen what the New Deal is going to do for them, not when they sort of just have airy promises. You know, when Roosevelt comes in, his vice president is John Garner, who's from Texas, Uvalde, Texas. You know, this is not a town with a great civil rights record, right? And uh, so black voters are naturally uh, 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 leery of what the Roosevelt, but in 36, they're all in and they stay all in. You know, you know, basically down to the present, with some uh, uh, a difference because of the New Deal. So that by the second term, Roosevelt establishes the civil rights section in the Department of Justice, uh, oh. which is has the charge to bring uh, civil rights cases. Yeah. It brings uh, a vitally important case in forty forty one where they win before the Supreme Court to bring primaries under federal control. Wow. That paves yeah. the way to eliminate the all-white primary, which comes in 44 with the, uh, the case brought by the NAACP LDF. But they depend on the Justice Department's brief in that previous case, right? So it's, it's this moment in history when there are in the Democratic Party, both segregationists and civil rights activists. And Roosevelt's administration contains both of them, Mm. and for the moment of the new deal extended into the war can kind of keep that tension going because people do want the new deal and people do then want to mobilize for the war and they don't want civil rights to interfere with that that means that a lot of people who work for the roosevelt administration who are black will later observe that roosevelt made compromises like the one you alluded to you know there's a famous case where um uh, there's a, an anti-lynching bill is before, uh, the Congress, there, there have been several of those instances and, um, it's, you know, a majority votes for it in the house, right? And it's filibustered in the Senate because again, as you know, the rules of the Senate allow a minority to filibuster and it's the white Southerners who are filibustering it. And, and, you know, this stops the Senate from doing other business, And so Roosevelt has his son, Jimmy, you know, basically talk to some of the southern senators, including James Burns uh, of South Carolina, who, you know, he says, father wants to know when this filibuster is going to end. And he says, if he keeps pushing, uh, you know, for this bill, then it's not going to end until 2038, you know. So, you know, the Roosevelt administration, therefore, does back off on a lot of this stuff. Uh, especially in terms of legislation however in terms of executive action it kind of pushes forward you know so there's a it's absolutely a mixed bag but it's um you know it's it is ultimately the 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 route through which black voters become uh, capital d
0: democrats thank you for that great fascinating dive into civil rights and the new deal and how they intersect what is the ultimate legacy of the new deal today how does it shape our lives today and what can we learn from it
1: well, I mean, the New Deal has a, uh, uh, well, I was about to say concrete legacy, but then I was going to stop because that sounds like a pun, but actually it's true. <laughs> you know, uh, almost no matter where you live in the United States, you have some very palpable uh, legacy of the New Deal near you. Uh, you know, if you're in a major metropolitan area, there's almost certainly some kind of bridge or dam or, uh, you know, um, uh, highway or road that, uh, you know, is, is a new deal construction. So, you know, it's, uh, in, in near, near me, the San Francisco Bay bridge, the golden gate bridge, we're all partially, we're both partially new deal constructions, the Shasta dam, which is the immense, uh, hydroelectric dam north of here, um, is, uh, is a new deal production, you know, almost anywhere you go, you can find these major things, uh, schools, post offices, uh, especially smaller ones when you see that they have that kind of, you know, modern neoclassical look that's still got the kind of the curves and stuff like that. The cornerstone will almost certainly be sometime in the 30s or early 40s because it's a New Deal post office. Uh, You know, near me, there are sidewalks that are still stamps WPA, you know, 1938, stuff like that. And that's true all over the country, right? They, you know, I mean, and if you go to a national park, Uh, There are plaques that will say the CCC built this or built that. And, um, uh, you know, so there is that legacy. It's also, I think, kind of a sobering reminder that that's the last time we had that kind of big push in terms of uh, infrastructure. I mean, if you want to, you know, almost uh, uh, across the board, bipartisan agreement is that our infrastructure is in pretty sad shape now. And it's because we haven't done that kind of thing uh, in that concentrated way. In a long time, so um, there's that. Uh, you know, the anyone who's engaged in any way with the uh, economy is living in a New Deal shaped economy, right? The New Deal brings you national minimum wage. The New Deal brings you national labor uh, 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 legislation. The New Deal, of course, brings you social security, which establishes your public old age pension. The New Deal um, brings you uh, all the banking. Regulations that we now have the FDIC, right? It it, it beefs up the Federal Reserve's uh, regulatory power, right? It gives you the National Labor Relations Board. So basically anything financial or economic you ever do. You're dealing with, you know, yeah. institutions that were established by the New Deal. Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, is a New Deal creation. Uh, you know, so again, you can sort of just go down the list. Right. And um, that's true internationally as well. Right. The uh, the the. Um, the World Bank and the IMF yeah, yeah, are creations yeah. of the Bretton Woods Conference, which is a Keynes slash New Deal you know, uh, a joint that's done during the war, but you know, reflects the lessons learned from the Great Depression in, in an international way. So, again, the New Deal's fingerprints are all over all of these things, um, you know, in a, in a less tangible way. I mean, it's, um, it's an interesting political resource, uh, as i pointed out in the book in in uh you know why the new deal matters which you were kind enough to mention right it's really the only mobilization of the american people behind a patriotic ideal that doesn't have anything to do with war you know and that's that's unique in american history right we we can all get together around war you know sometimes people <laughs> say oh the space program but that's the cold war right i mean so you know it's really it's like the new deal is out there as an outlier in terms of a small p Pacific articulation of American patriotism, and that's uh, you know it's sort of sitting there as as a tool that politicians could use. And I think President Biden has tried to use it uh, in the course of his his, his, his so time in office so far you know he 's made direct reference to Roosevelt a few times especially earlier in his presidency, um, and specifically this idea that you know we should be able to pull together to resolve these problems because that 's how you demonstrate to people that the government still works for them right? um, And I think, frankly, in the first months of of Biden's presidency, there was something too that people really did look at the immediate sort of flood of COVID relief stuff and say, oh, wow, you know, my tax dollars at work. Now, I know a lot of that glow has has faded for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, I think that 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 was something that's still a kind of New Deal legacy that you can point to. For sure.
0: Last question I got for you. What lessons in leadership can we learn from Roosevelt and his implementation of the New Deal?
1: Uh, you know, this is one of those things. Uh, historians every now and then run up against somebody who's uh, smarter than we are. And I think, um, <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt falls into that category. He's a very difficult figure to assess because he's so shrewd. He's a way better politician than any other politician that I can point to with maybe Lyndon Johnson Frankly, I think John Kennedy is underrated as a politician as well, but uh, that's another podcast. Um, I think that, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that, um, so 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 it's, it's um, you want to be super careful when you're talking about somebody who's probably smarter than you are, because you want to <laughs> think, even with, you know, the many decades that have elapsed since his death, he can still fool you, right? Even so, you have plenty of time to think about it. You know, you, you can still be taken in, so you have to be super careful in um, trying to uh, kind of draw conclusions from that. I think that uh, you know Roosevelt was embedded in a political moment that is no longer in existence, right? The the as I said, he was able because of that moment to command a national majority that included both white segregationists and black voters and civil rights, and I just that really doesn't exist after. The early '60s at the latest, right? So he was master of that moment. Would he be master of any other moment? I I can't tell. You know, he was um, a gifted uh, maneuverer in his time, and boy, you know, he was terrifically lucky, right? I mean, you know, he he knew when to he had caught a break, and he was able to capitalize on it. And of course that. Occurred during the war as well. He was very, very good at using the commander in chief power. He mostly kept it in check. But when he wanted to flex that muscle, you know, he signed a note, Roosevelt CNC, to let you know right? Uh, that uh, he was the one in charge here, right? So he, he knew when to use power, which is, of course, uh, uh, a thing that politicians need to know. So I think you can, you can learn a lot from studying him. But again, none of these exact situations is likely to recur. The one thing I would say, again, is the thing we started out with is, you know, Roosevelt demonstrated over and over again, that if you show people that the government works for them, and that means like you might have to slap a sign on it saying WPA, which <laughs> they did, right? Yeah, yeah. Then they are more likely to vote for you, right? That again, good policy is good politics.
0: If you've enjoyed this interview with Eric and want to learn more about Roosevelt and the New Deal, please check out Eric's numerous books, such as Why the New Deal Matters, Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash Over the New Deal. And The Moneymakers, How Roosevelt and Keynes Ended the Depression, Defeated Fascism, and Secured a Prosperous Peace. Uh, you can also follow him on Mastodon at Roushway at Mastodon.social. Thank you for your time, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, Pester them to listen until they can tell you which president is a bit of a hero in Paraguay, and then write a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon, or go directly to www.patreon.com slash histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, Lindsay Chervinsky will return to the show to discuss her new book, Mourning the President's Loss and Legacy in American Culture, and she'll be joined by her co-editor, Matt Costello. Together, we'll look at how the nation mourns its presidents and how it was impacted by the unexpected death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That's coming up next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.